Hello, hello. Uh, lovely to meet you. Where exactly are you based? So I'm in Sydney, Australia. What time is it there right now? It is dead on 7pm. Ah, and, and I expect it's warm and lovely? It is. We're actually going into autumn, so it's getting a little bit cooler. Um, but yeah, uh, I can't complain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all relative, I guess, really. Yeah. <laughs> So you've had um, a day at work, I guess. Indeed. What were you doing? Tell, tell, tell us what you've been doing today. So um, today being Monday, um, I have a lot of meetings with my students on a Monday. So touching base on their projects and seeing how they're getting on and um, spent some time in the lab. So I have um, some corals coming in actually from the Great Barrier Reef on Wednesday um, as part of an ongoing experiment. So we're getting the aquarium set up and trying to get all of the water chemistry for that set. Um, and we've got some samples that we're going to be processing in the lab to look at coral um, DNA. So we're getting things set up for that. So it's been a, been a busy day, but a good day. Uh, excellent, excellent. I, I'm just looking at um, your site again, and um, it says coral scientist, deputy team leader for Future Reefs program, which, is, which, is, which sounds good. Um, and your research focuses on the uh, physiology, ecology, and biochemistry of coral reefs. So can you fill us in a little bit of uh, what all that's about? Yeah, so I've always had a fascination with reefs ever since I was um, young. I was really lucky that um, my dad took me snorkeling when I was... Um, yeah, about seven or eight. Um, so not not in the S in Essex, which is where I'm from originally in the UK. Um, but um, we went over to the Caribbean. So I was really lucky. And as soon as I saw a reef, I was just fascinated by it. Um, but I never really kind of realised how valuable or important they were. And as I went on, like I decided that I was still really interested in them, and I learned how important they were. Um, and then when I was in college, learned that because of human impact particularly through climate change reefs are struggling globally um, we've lost significant portions of our reefs unfortunately and so I decided I wanted to try to understand what was going on and what we could maybe do to help them and to really be able to do that we need to understand what the basic biology is of the coral and um, how it interacts with the environment around it so the chemistry and the ecology of that system and then what we can do as individuals as scientists to potentially aid that system so that's kind of really where I mean in a broad area my research focuses is understanding the impacts that we're having what can we try to do about it and what's the best way we can aid them while particularly while we try and kind of buy time while we get action on climate change well and what do you think we've learned or you learned over the last few years about corals and what is there still to learn in fact you know, to be honest, we are, I think there's just so much that we are still really only just discovering um, about coral. So coral um, is 
we call it a holobiont, a whole biology. So it's made up of an animal. Um, it's made up of a microalgae that photosynthesize and give the coral its color and also most of its food. Um, and then there's bacteria, viruses, protists, all these other microorganisms that contribute to the overall functioning of the, of the organism. And we actually know really very little about any of them at all, but we know they're really important. So like we have good gut bacteria, we um, are realizing that coral have something very similar but we know very little about what what that actually is um and so if we take the great barrier reef which is where kind of most of my research has been focusing and um, since 2016 there's been five coral bleaching events so because of thermal stress we've seen and um, the algae actually be lost from the coral which basically means a coral can't survive for very long so it's not got its primary way to get to get food um, and that's seen about 30 to 50 percent depending on which area we're looking at of live coral cover be lost so we're, we're talking in a five-year period um, masses masses of um, coral loss and because of the frequency of those stress events we're not sure that it's got the capacity to recover in time before future events continue to occur so one area of kind of research I've really been looking at is what if we look at corals that are naturally um, kind of tolerant to stress. So looking at areas where we wouldn't typically go to. So I spend a lot of time in um, crocodile infested mangrove lagoons of the northern Great Barrier Reef. And the reason I'm interested in that is that these hot, um, acidic, low oxygen, not great, pristine waters um, actually house coral and so how are they adapted to survive in those really hostile conditions when on the reef sometimes only a few hundred meters away the corals are bleaching and stressed so I'm kind of studying these extreme corals to try and see how we can learn how they've adapted um, and yeah there's a lot that we we're still um, uncovering but so far we've found uh, new algae that live with the coral in these systems which we know is part of their resilience and um, they actually their baseline physiology is different so the way that they um, process energy is different um, and we think they feed more so they actually rather than relying just on the microalgae they actually are able to feed heterotrophically and um, so actually kind of got like little tentacles that can suck in particulate from the water that we think gives them extra energy to deal with these really hostile environments. And how is that going to help corals that don't have that ability, normal corals out on, on what term as a standard reef? Yeah, yeah, that's a really great question. Um, you know, in terms of the whole reef, um, it's not going to be able to aid them all. What we are doing is looking at high value economic and ecological sites to look about whether or not we can translocate, so move these corals and grow them in nurseries and try to outplant them at some of these sites to kind of have some hot spots of resilience. Um, also, what it's doing is telling us kind of which species naturally may be able to survive so again that's one of the questions we're asking is are there actually some species of corals that will actually be able to survive into the future is it just this specific environment it's kind of like a natural laboratory to see what the future of the reef and um, could look like and so with that 
when we can see there's lower diversity, they're, they're smaller, it's also giving us um, a platform to advocate, you know, at the highest level, you know, basically to governments to say, look, we, we have to be doing more um, if we want to save our reefs. So, you know, myself and scientists really across Australia see these kind of active interventions as being um, buying time. We have to address climate change to ensure that we've got at least functional reefs into the future. Um, but unfortunately, because of how quickly these stress events are coming we fear that without some intervention and action um, we may not have reefs in the future yeah uh, i mean the way things are going as far as i can see that that's a, has a high probability um that our reefs are in almost beyond a turning point uh, i do admire and look at groups around the world who are trying to replant, re-establish um, reefs, coral, and, and it always strikes me as slightly sad, <laughs> one, that they have to do it in the first place, and it seems a bit desperate to me, I mean, because even if you get the coral to grow, you've got so much animal life so much um biodiversity that probably isn't going to come back into those reefs um what, what do you feel about that so look i think that it you know again it's coming down to a point where we have to be really um, strategic about where we have investments so there are definitely some areas where just attempting to repopulate um, may just not make any sense either ecologically or economically where you've got a site that's degraded but isn't past the point of no return I think if you can prioritize um, rehabilitation of that sort of system then it can have a good effect because you can kind of get the critical mass of biomass to a point that it can basically start to be self-sustaining again and that's what you ultimately you want you need enough biomass there so that when there's spawning events there's enough kind of new genetic material to repopulate a system so i think it can be beneficial in certain instances but there are definitely cases where it doesn't make sense to do it mm. it, it, it is tragic if 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 you were the australian prime minister right now what would you what what could you do? What, what would you do to halt all this or make things better? I mean, we've got a great opportunity coming up. Um, COP26 is obviously ah, um, yes. coming around. And so, you know, that's really, um, you know, although unfortunately action hasn't happened sooner, um, you know, what we need to see for me at, the, at, that, at that event is that there is not just in Australia, but a global commitment to move away from our fossil fuel um relationship as a, as a how we you know kind of function uh, on for energy um and this not be kind of a 2040 2050 plan this needs to be like a five to seven year plan to get us you know to transition away from this and change the mindset that it's bad for the economy and you know there is so much innovation job creation that can that can occur from that shift and um, but it needs to be incentivized by the government it needs to be you know tax breaks and things and incentives to push industry to to make these changes so for me that's really you know without that shift away from partnering um, and relying on an economy that's based on fossil fuel and um, partnerships then you know this is an uphill uphill battle what we're trying to do um, 
yeah it's it's i've described it you know as putting a a plaster on an arterial bleed and then it, and it does feel like that sometimes so you know if we're not dealing with climate change like you know this is a real battle that we're probably not going to win and not just for coral reefs unfortunately yeah it's a it's a good um good phrase to use there i often use it, it's like having a manicure just before you have your hand your hand amputated i mean it's, <laughs> it's a, perhaps my humor is a little bit blacker than yours i think yeah <laughs> so i mean tourism is obviously play well actually first of all i mean what is the, what is the the true state of the barrier reef at the moment um yeah so i'm really pleased you asked that because um you know let's take the fact that the great barrier the size of italy and um, there are areas of the reef that are doing you know stunning and amazingly beautiful i was there um in um end of february march and there was reef that's you know looking really amazing but equally there's other areas that look like uh, like a coral graveyard and again so it's this um you know, we have to remember that the Great Barrier Reef is a series of up to 3,000 reefs that form that system. And so there's a real spread of what kind of state the reef is in. Um, so there is still areas of amazing reef. And that's why I have hope that, you know, hope isn't lost because there is still reef there that's worth fighting for that is doing well. Um, but since the 80s, coral cover, coral cover has been declining. And obviously since 2016, that mass loss is really what's um, concerning. But overall, what percentage, and I know it's, it's a lot of different reefs, but overall, what is actually gone now? So based on the last assessment that came out, which obviously is not my not myself, but what's come, come out from um, sort of the government was that 50% of um, the reef has been lost. Wow. Wow. That's interesting hearing you say that. I mean, I've asked various people and, and you know, it, it depends on people what, the, what they want out of it, in fact, what they tell you. It's, you know, some say, oh, no, it's fine, it's beautiful. But, it, uh, you know, it depends where they are, what, they, what they're looking at. But exactly. I, I think your 50% is, is true and it's terrifying, really terrifying. Do you get is there fishing on the on on the reefs in Australia? Commercial fishing. So there is, and more up north, and actually, like what all the marine protection zones are, um, they change. And I wouldn't say that currently I'm entirely clear on what percentage it is. So we'd have to look before I uh, say something that is inaccurate. But there is still areas that you can commercial fish. Right. Is it? I mean, I assume that's not trawling or anything like that. Or is it? I feel like on the on the outer north there could be because I read something recently about that. Um, I do know as a collective that there's still um, you know a significant portion that's not not got high level marine protection, and that's one thing that um, you know people have been pushing for. But again, there's obviously lots of um, users of the reef, and so again, the government has to balance, I guess, all of those um, needs in making those decisions. Yeah, that 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 was quite a uh, a nice political answer. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, here in the UK, for example, 
I, I forget the numbers now, but I think we it's maybe five, six hundred protected area, marine protected areas. Yeah. And I, as I say, I forget the, the numbers now. I think it's about 95% of those are commercially fished. They're, yeah. they're bottom trawled and dredged. And it's just, yeah. lip, it's just lip service, basically. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something, unfortunately, that um, is is a global problem. Is that um, they're called a paper park, right? As if you haven't got enforcement there, and it's so hard to enforce the oceans because of the, their size. And um, that's changing with obviously like satellite and technology that can help with that. But um, unfortunately, that's something that we see time and time again. Is that something's protected on paper, but the reality is, if it's not regulated, means that it has very little. Um, ability to do what it was ultimately set out to do yeah indeed and of course even when you have rules policing it is 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 often a huge problem yeah i mean covid excuse me covid's taking its toll on travel of course um but i assume tourism is extremely important to the reef uh to your reef systems um what's been happening this last year now that you haven't had tourism, I mean, uh, have people managed financially? So that's a really good um, good point. Um, so one of the projects that I'm involved in is something called the Coral Nurture Programme. So we set up a initiative with um, some tour operators in 2018, and it came off of some discussions um, on a research trip on board a, a tourism vessel. And it talked about the fact that a lot of the tour operators, they can do kind of site maintenance at their site, such as removing drapella, which is a snail that eats the coral, and crown a sp- uh, thorn starfish that can eat the coral if they see them on site they can remove them and they have permits from the government to do this but if for example you have a storm come through and you get lots of broken coral and they can't do anything with that so they have to leave it and it can end up in the sand and generally is not going to survive if once it's broken off and so we worked with the government to come up with um, a new permit that allowed um, tour operators to basically take these fragments of opportunity that would be lost anyway to grow them in nurseries because at the sites where they are it's got high economic value because they're there anyway and actually if they've got the boat going out they can um kind of offset the fuel cost to actually make like restoration more cost effective at their sites and they really had a need and and also a want to do this Um, and what was really kind of special is that through this process with covid unfortunately obviously tourism as you said um, especially well international domestic tourism's actually started to pick back up there because people can't travel but with international tourists not being there and the boats not not being able to go out there was actually some funding from the government to repurpose the vessel to actually go out and outplant corals um, so they've across the sites that we've been working on they've been able to outplant the operators over um, which is actually a huge amount in a small area and so that's where earlier on where we were saying you know you have to be selective where you do this and you can't necessarily make a big impact but if you've got sites where you've got um, higher economic value and you've got these fragments there anyway then it kind of starts to make um, financial sense to to target those areas um in terms of whether or not I, i've been asked this a few times with the lack of you know 
it, will the reef be better because maybe less people have been visiting it? I've heard that asked to me a lot. And actually in Australia, I don't, I, that this, the tourism is so well regulated and the operators are so conscious of the environment. There's a lot of, um, a lot of them have got, you know, eco accreditations. They are a lot of the time marine biologists that are trained to kind of talk about the reef. And so the practices here are very good. So I don't think that there was going to be a kind of, big difference from the tourism not being there and um, but other sites where that kind of level of um, policing may not be there then it's quite possible that those reefs might see a benefit from the lack of kind of people traffic but time will tell uh, yes indeed indeed it was uh, uh, i was very happy to hear you talk about the tour operators and dive operators who are actually environmentally aware because yeah. that doesn't happen everywhere. Um, you know, I've been to lots no. of places and basically you join a tourist group, you jump on a boat, they explain where the reef is or the wreck or in you go. And yeah. there is no thought or education. I mean, immediate education yeah. to tourists on yeah. what they're looking at, what, what the issues are. Um, yeah. But you seem to be doing that in Australia. No, it's been, yeah, Australia's been really like, you know, at the forefront of that. And actually what was interesting, so when I first kind of started in my in my science career, one of my first ever research projects that I did as part of my master's, I went to the Florida Keys and I went on board dive boats and actually um, observed divers. They filled out a questionnaire afterwards and were aware of what I was doing. But it was basically to look to see how much divers interacted with the reef and then I worked out per vessel per number of vessels per year to actually find out how much physical interaction divers were having and what was really interesting was that it actually didn't matter about your dive level it didn't matter about your um it didn't matter about um yeah how many dives you had the thing like all your like technical certification but the things that actually made a difference were if you had a camera or not um so people with cameras unfortunately were a little bit more clumsy on the reef um gloves um because people just seemed a bit more confident if they had gloves on as touching things um but irrespective of those factors the boats that gave a a conservation education briefing on the boat reduced the number of impacts across all groups and so and it was simple things as like reminding people to tuck in their gauges not to touch the coral because it was actually alive that you'll see these sorts of things and and actually talking about not just the impact of touching the reef but that the fact that if you do it could make it more susceptible to disease so even if it was just like a little touch like th that there could be consequences and so it was really interesting to see that actually giving that you know giving that um discussion to dives on the boat could actually translate to less impact on the reef yeah, of course. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, I know. It it's seems, common sense, it, isn't it? It is, but it, but it doesn't, you know, it is, but it's amazing that obviously it's not, you know, not done, um, you know, enough. So it's great, you know, it's great in Australia that they do that. And um, I know in, in Florida now they have um, kind of a, a five-star environmental rating and they've got, you know, things to encourage, incentivize operators to take on these, um, you know, best practices. Do you know what kind of feedback you get from tourists who have these discussions or lectures before they start diving? I mean, do they, do they actually take it on board? 
I mean, from the ones I've been at on up on the like on the reef most recently here, I mean, people seem like genuinely like interested. Especially, you know, a lot of people have it's you know, especially um, the Great Barrier Reef for a lot of people is like a bucket list item, and um, that they've you know traveled or saved up to come to. So, you know, from my experience, you know, people have seen quite. Um, receptive to the information they're receiving i mean there's always going to be that few unfortunately but what i would say with that few is that um the dive masters and the snorkel instructors that i've seen here are very quick to remind those few if they don't follow um you know the, the, the rules so which is good yeah that's very good yeah excellent <laughs> excellent with with all of your research i mean how how far back can you actually look? I mean, when, when did research start to start giving you a baseline of information? So one of the study sites that I have on the Great Barrier is an area called Lowell's, and it recently celebrated its 100th, 100th year of research. And it was the kind of um, first site on the Great Barrier Reef that had kind of documented surveying done there. Um, but if we think about Australia, and this is really what's really interesting is, you know, the traditional owners that we have here, um, they have so much information about how the reefs have um, evolved, you know, and we're talking about 60,000 years. Um, and if there's, I think it was on Blue Planet, um, David Attenborough spoke to some scientists in Australia about what was happening with the currents and they'd done all of this um you know modeling and everything else and then they went and spoke to the traditional owners and they had been singing this singing about the same phenomenon for the last like 30 to forty thousand years through their you know culture and so um in terms of western science there's a hundred years worth of documented um, information but here in australia we're increasingly learning that there's thousands of years of knowledge that we can um build upon that is amazing that's yeah. Uh, and and scientists actually take notice of this. Oh, we need to because I'm not saying oh, it's done as a collective, but we we yeah. need to be doing it because we're missing. Um, you know, it's it's rewriting the wheel and starting from a point that we don't need to be. And that's again why actually the partnership, for, even with the tour operator, for example, has been so beneficial. And um, for me as a scientist, for example, is that you know I'm in Sydney, I might get up to the reef three or four times a year um, and if we're thinking about the questions that need you know th that would be beneficial to the reef or we're thinking about active restoration we could turn up and say okay this reef looks like a really great place to try to do some natural recovery and, and aid it and um, if the tour operators that have worked there for 30 40 years say well there's never been coral there then that's obviously not a good place to do that. So again, it's where like having those conversations between stakeholders is just so important. And I think that's increasingly being recognized because the severity of the problem we're facing is beyond any, you know, single scientist or single stakeholder. And so actually that unity coming together to try and solve the problems that we're seeing with environmental and climate change is, um, it's improving. I wouldn't say it's where it needs to be, but we're, we're getting better as a community for sure. Right. And, to, and thinking on communities, um, citizen science is, is, of course, expanding with technology, you know, yes. cameras, laptops, phones, or, and all the rest yeah. of it. So normal Joe public, how can he or she help with the preservation 
of coral reefs, a marine world basically, but but corals uh, with just their phones, just the fact they dive, they photograph, they're recording. So there's, um, so one of the kind of really cool projects that um, I've been involved with is something called Citizens, this is Great Barrier Reef Focus, I apologise, but um, Citizens of the Great Barrier Reef, but there's something called the Great Reef Census. And basically, um, people that are diving on the Great Barrier Reef upload images, and it can be scientists, it can be guests, it can be tour operators, but then anybody, regardless of where you are in the world, can help analyse um, those, those pictures for data. Um, so you can, there's a bit of training at the start to help kind of ID, you know, what's coral, what's dead, what's alive, and kind of once you've gone through that, you can then um, survey pictures. And basically, it's kind of being considered sort of the biggest citizen science um, coral project in the world to try and actually bring people together. And it doesn't matter where you are and you can contribute. So that's one um, really, you know, novel way, I think, that can kind of get big data and anybody involved on their phone, on their computer. Um, and then, you know, the other thing for me is, is just if you you know, can just engage in in the issues that reefs are facing. Um, and I, I hear too often people say to me, you know, oh, well, you know, I live in, you know, I live in the UK, we don't have reefs. And I'm like, well, there are deep, deep reefs around the UK, but they look, look a bit different to um, the coral reefs that we have, say, here in Australia. But again, if we lost coral reefs, that would have a massive knock-on effect to the uh, economy, to stability in, you know, many countries that fundamentally rely on reefs for their survival. And so thinking of ways that we can reduce our carbon footprint, that we can try to, you know, promote environmental um change it like you know within our workplace in our everyday life you know collectively that does have a difference and I think we're starting to see um society be more vocal about wanting and um, you know the environment to be protected so those all um help the reef yeah it, it, it does I mean can you can you gauge what percentage of people who actually visit reefs do actually um, partake in citizen science? I wouldn't know. Um, I wouldn't want to guess because I could probably be wildly off. Um, sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think, um, yeah, I'm not sure. No, It'd be don't interesting worry. to find out. Don't worry. I, just, I was just trying to gauge for myself, yeah. really, how many people to actually took interest. Uh, uh, enough to do it. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Because certainly, as as I've dived over the years with groups, I must confess I haven't seen any uh, yeah. <laughs> interaction with with conservation groups, um, which is which is a little de uh, depressing, really. But yeah. um, I, wonder, I wonder what the actual facts were. Yeah, and I, I think as as um, you know, look, as as technology advances as well, there's other you know there's other kind of ways that people can get involved. You know, I've seen and aware of um, you know companies where divers can get like an environmental monitor that goes on their BCD. So every time they dive, is collecting data on like the conditions of the water that can then feed back into a bigger data set. So there's kind of lots of ways that people are starting to try and allow people to get involved in either the data collection or the data analysis. And so I think the capacity for individuals to be involved will increase. Um, it'll be interesting to see kind of how that then translates to like percentage engagement. So yeah, we'll have to have to see if, if that data is out there. 
That is fantastic. I didn't know that existed. So it's a little data gatherer or logger. Yeah, I'll um, wow. I'll send you over the information afterwards, and you can you can share the link. But yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. I I, I would love to have a have a good look at that and uh, promote yeah. it as much as possible. Gosh, yeah. that's fantastic. Is that just an Australian thing, or is it? No, is it's it actually yeah. So someone that I um worked with in the Caribbean a, a while ago, they kind of had the idea and, and were setting up. And it's been a while spent since I've touched base with them about where it was at. But um yeah, they they came up with the idea and were starting to get it used. Um and again, there's kind of other ideas. Um, we've also like private boats and 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 I think there's already a bit of a network with that where people can kind of get a sensor that they put on the hull of their boat so as they're you know cruising around and they're collecting data and you know for us as scientists that's the biggest challenge is collecting continuous high quality data from the ocean is is challenging so these kind of ways are actually super valuable um yeah yes of course absolutely well, it's been lovely talking to you. Uh, thank you for taking the time. I know you've you've done this at the end of quite a long day, so so that's brilliant. No what actually? What does tomorrow hold for you? Are, you? are you at sea at all? Are you diving? Not tomorrow. No, I am um, back in the lab. So again, we're getting like all set for this um, uh, experiment that's running from um, Wednesday. So not due to be up on the reef until um, probably about four to five weeks time. And um, fingers crossed the borders stay open because, um, yeah, it, they kind of shut very quickly between states, as obviously you can understand um, with COVID. But hopefully we can get, yeah, get to the reef then. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> certainly here. It's been been a long long dry year i must say but yeah we should we've been very lucky here so i am um, ah. i sympathize <laughs> <laughs> well look, you, you take care and um, best of luck with with all of your work um amazing work and um i thank you again thank you it's been great talking to you ah thanks now bye bye bye